Hi there, this is Jeff. I'm with my friend Brian, and we'll be talking about the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy in all its forms. But before we do that, let's listen to a message from one of our proud sponsors. Do your plans include the violent takeover of the universe? Are you a fan of the Silastic Armor Fiends of Striderax? Are you in need of a nearly endless supply of semi-autonomous deadly robots? Then we at the Sirius Cybernetics Corporation have a deal for you. Call now. Call now. Call now. Call us at 1-800-MIXALOT. And if you qualify, we'll send a squadron of deadly robots to the solar system you select, where they will eliminate every living thing. The Serious Cybernetic Corporation is not responsible for the death of every living thing in the universe. For more details about this deal, please contact us at yourplasticpalwho'snofuntobewith.com. Hey Brian, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Jeff. How are you? I don't know. I uh, don't seem to be myself today. <laughs> and why is that? Well, everything seems familiar, but it's mm -hmm. like it's happening to a completely different person. <laughs> I wonder who that would be. Oh, wow. <laughs> that would be Doctor Who and the Cricket Man. I got it. Yay. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, before we talk about that book, okay. the last episode, you kind of pointed out that I called stories about time travel disappointing at best. Yes. And we've been talking about time travel stories. Yes, we have. So I want to clarify that. Okay. The disappointing ones are the ones that are trying to take themselves too seriously. And the one thing you can say about these novels is that they do not take themselves seriously. Do <laughs> you want to elaborate on that? <laughs> elaborate on this book not taking itself too seriously? No, on, on which ones you think are... What would be a good time travel story in your mind? Because I've been thinking a I lot. I believe I said time travel stories are normally disappointing because they take themselves too seriously and there's all kinds of holes and flaws with time travel. There's always the bootstrap paradox or something like that. Yes. Here, yes. he is not taking himself seriously. It's a time travel story, so all of the mayhem that happens just falls in line with all of the other mayhem that he's writing. Gotcha. Gotcha. That is true. Because this week, um, I've been thinking a lot about uh, Bruce Willis and Gene Iul. Okay. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Clan of the Cave Bear and Die Hard. <laughs> That's a mashup I never thought I was going to hear. <laughs> Except, you know, and, that, and that's a funny thing, because I figured you would mention Die Hard, because it's not Die Hard. Okay. It's it's 12 Monkeys. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I'm really happy that you got the first one right. I mean, that I didn't think by the name of the author you would know that it was Clan of the Cave Bear, but <laughs> oh, I'm impressed. Well, well, thank you. I read. <laughs> Oh, I know you do. It's just that uh, Clan of the Cave Bear was, you know, it came out in 1980. It's a, it's an older book. Yes. From my perspective, it's one of the best, I'm going to call it environmentally complex and well-written books that um, I've ever read. Oh, absolutely. And of course, 
Jean was a uh, anthropologist of sorts, so her focus was always on the intricate detail of the world in which the characters lived. Right. But that's not the reason I brought her up. But let's go ahead with our conversation and see if she comes up again. Okay, let's. <laughs> but once again, in our questionable answers, I did ask you a second part of a Petunia question of when did it actually die? And we forgot to have you answer it. Right, and I failed to answer that completely. <laughs> do you have an answer? I do have an answer, and I'd like to give my answer like you give your answers. Okay. So you have to ask me the question then, okay? <laughs> okay. So, Jeff, how long does it take a bowl of Petunias to die? Well, well, that's a good question. I I really like that one. Uh, But I think this answer is simpler than you think. I mean, it's right there in the book. Okay. And then I'll also say that this answer is twofold. All right. The first book says that the only thing that went through the mind of the bowl of petunias as it fell was, oh, no, not again. The only thing. That would lead you to believe that they died then and there. Right. When the whale and the bowl of petunias materialized out of nothing, they were basically at the edge of space. Mm -hmm. It would be extremely cold. Mm -hmm. The whale, with all of its blubber, would not freeze immediately. Mm -mm. It would have all kinds of time coming to grips with being a whale. (laughs) However, we all know what happens to our plants when there's an unexpected frost. Right. So I'm going to say that the bowl of petunias were cryogenically frozen right after having that thought. However, that's not the point at which it died. In the third book, Agrajag said during his rant, that life ended a very short while later, 300 miles lower in the fresh wreckage of a whale. So that impact is what extinguished the life force of the oh, frozen there you petunias. Go. So, so maybe they were cryogenically frozen, as you suggest. <laughs> and when they fell to the ground, they shattered yes. into a million pieces, and that ended its, its existence. Yeah, so he couldn't have any more thoughts because he was frozen. I See? like that, Jeff. That was right. a brilliant observation. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Let's switch roles for the next one. No. <laughs> Sure, we can do that. No, no, you are the you're the answerer. Oh my goodness. Before we get into the nitty-gritty of the story, I want to start out with a little bit of history. And I found this on tardisfandom.com. Okay. So the story The Cricket Men was an unproduced serial written by Douglas Adams for the TV show Doctor Who. Yes. The TV show rejected it. In 1976. Right. So this predates Hitchhikers by a couple of years. Mm -hmm. Then, in 1980, Adams reworked the script as a feature film and submitted it to Paramount Pictures. And nothing came of that. Mm -hmm. And like you mentioned before about Adams wanting no good idea to go to waste, (laughs) he put many of the ideas from this story in his book, Life, the Universe, and Everything. Correct. This full-length novelization was adapted by James Goss, Mm -hmm. and it also mentions that he used many other ideas from Adam's works, both published and unpublished. 
And that kind of bugs me. And I wish he would have really just said, I stuck to the original script as closely as I can because I'm having trouble deciding what was in the original and what has been thrown in to make all of us Douglas Adams fans go, oh, I know what that is. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you've certainly come around to my points that I was going to make. And again, what we referred to earlier, it's about Gene. And I'm going to talk about uh, James here, James Goss, the author. Right. The the reason I bring her up is because it's really interesting. You've read the first book. Did, Did you read the others of her book series? I did do a bunch of them in the series. I don't know how many I got through, but I did get through three or four. Right. And I don't remember exactly where it was, but at some point in the series, you begin to notice that the book becomes not unreadable, but it becomes almost too complex and and, uh, divergent and and separated from itself in the reading, quite unlike the first book. And the rumor at the time, and this is funny because I did some research because I really was curious about this. Right. Uh, the rumor at the time, I mean, I did recent research, uh, was that she had Alzheimer's disease. Oh. And that uh, her memory was failing and that she could no longer write in the style that she was, that we were familiar to reading. Okay. In the subsequent research that I did, the fact of her ailments or memory problems or whatever are are either completely scrubbed from the internet or they were just in fact rumors and and not real okay in a brief interview that i watched uh, she indicated that she was just a very slow writer but again to me at that level then it was a bad editor that caused the books to go south right you know (laughs) and we we talked about bad editing before but the point the point that i wanted to make about this whole thing was when a writer writes we hear their voice we hear their style yes we understand their life through the way they view the rest of the world okay and as i was reading through that series of books i saw a major deviation from what I had expected from Jean. Right. And therefore, I made the assumption that, that she, in fact, had Alzheimer's or some kind of a problem like that, or that someone else was writing for her. Right. And that's what I get so heavily in this particular book. And I keep thinking about this and thinking about it. So I did a little bit more research into James Goss. Okay. Interesting character. Uh, he is a fanboy. And he is a fan fiction boy. Okay. <laughs> um, I call him that because he was born in uh, 74. And I know that doesn't mean he's that much younger than we are, but he is a young man. So he wasn't even born, basically, when uh, Douglas Adams was at his prime. Right. And, of course, this book was written in 2018. So it's only Correct. been written about four years ago. And interestingly enough, and I think this is goes right to one of your own fandoms as, as well as mine. He's He started off primarily, I guess, as a fan site on the internet. And one of his fandoms was uh, Farscape. Oh, all right. <laughs> and he's subsequently, he'd written a, quite a number of novelizations. But his primary focus on all of the material that he's done is Doctor Who. Okay. So... 
even though this is attributed to Doctor Who, I mean, this story is Doctor Who and the Cricket Men, I really want to put in a comma there. <laughs> because when <laughs> I read this particular book, it's Doctor Who and the Cricket Men. <laughs> you know, the Adams part of this book, the, the part that shows us and speaks to our language and understanding of who Adams is, is very small, in my opinion. We see it in the beginning. We see it at the end-ish. Yes. But great swaths of this book are so un-Adams-like that all I can say is that the Doctor Who fans out there would probably really enjoy this book. But for me, uh, I'm going to put a question mark in there. Okay. <laughs> well, that, um... <laughs> brings up a, that brings up a point that I wanted to say, which was I have never read any other Doctor Who novel. Mm -hmm. So I don't have any idea what a Doctor Who novel sounds like. But I would bet that this sounds just like a Doctor Who novel, and that's what it's supposed to be. Well, yes and no. I, I, in fact, the, <laughs> I, was, I was kind of planning on showing you a graphic image so that you could get a little bit of an idea, but I knew they wouldn't work on the podcast, so I'll just... Define describe. graphic in that sentence. <laughs> <laughs> a pictorial <laughs> image. <laughs> So that put so that, that away. The, <laughs> you could see the bookshelf on which I have my Doctor Who collection. Okay, I have oh close to a hundred of the Doctor Who novelizations, and no they idea. are small little treatises that yes. don't expand more than a hundred and twenty-ish pages. In fact, they're designed and written as if you were to read them in a 45 to 50 minute period. Right. So this book is dense. Yes. And I, I don't want to overemphasize difficult, but I will in this particular, at this particular moment. But one thing I did sort of read that might make sense for this is someone, I don't know where I was, honestly. I was on the internet looking at different pieces of data, and I think it was a comment section that I was reading, and they said, it reads like it was meant to be 23 episodes of the Doctor Who television show. <laughs> I would say that is true. <laughs> yes, it is. Well, the book is broken up into two parts, mm -hmm. 42 chapters, mm -hmm. and... The last chapter is called The Meaning of Life. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But to, to bring my, my other reference back around, I wanted to mention Bruce Willis. And you were talking about time travel shows. And for me, 12 Monkeys is an excellent example of how time travel stories can be done well. Yes, I would agree. I did enjoy 12 Monkeys. But I like the circular nature of the of 12 Monkeys and the inevitability of time that's represented within that movie. And what made me think of 12 Monkeys is that when I read Life, the Universe, and Everything by Douglas Adams, I was impressed 
with the encapsulation of the story, how the beginning of the story wraps all the way around to the last moments of the story, yes. and each piece of it kind of folds together like you know, like an onion, like like you would expect it to, right. so that you get a complete story within the universe of of Douglas Adams and his storytelling ability, but definitely a complete story. And Doctor Who and the Cricket Men not so much <laughs> right right but anyway <laughs> i'm excited to talk about it how about oh, you yeah. jeff <laughs> well i have a lot good so i am attacking this podcast as nobody who is listening to this has actually read the book that's a good assumption and is going to know what's going on so i am going to detail all 42 chapters and throw in some little comments that I have about it, and I hope that you can throw in some comments too. <laughs> but basically, this is going to be a really, really long summary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just like you said in one of our previous episodes, sometimes you have to read it all, and sometimes you can summarize. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So the beginning of this book, as you mentioned, starts out sounding exactly like it came right out of a Hitchhiker's Guide novel. Chapter one is called Important and Exciting Galactic History, Do Not Skip, and starts off with the passage about the civilizations that risen and fallen, risen and fallen, risen and fallen, just like in Life, the Universe, and everything. Yes. Something that we have not talked about yet, which comes into the next book that we're going to talk about, So Long and Thanks for All the Fish, I got a little chuckle because a guy is walking under uh, scaffolding and a tool falls right. from a high place at a construction site and kills him. Mm -hmm. And the last thing the man sees is a sign on the scaffolding. <laughs> so do we want to say what the sign says? Because it's not been talked about yet. But the message on the sign is an important message in a later Hitchhiker's book. Yes. I, I think you could mention it here. It's clearly right. stated. It is. So the message is, we apologize for the inconvenience. <laughs> to demonstrate that people do not learn from others' mistakes, the story goes on to say that his mate gets killed running across the street to aid him and gets hit by a taxi. So, <laughs> and then they tell a story very similar to the Silastic Armor Fiends of Striderax. Right. And this race is called the Alovians. Right. An extremely aggressive race to keep from destroying themselves. Anybody who had to carry a gun in their profession had to work off excess aggression by punching a sack of potatoes. <laughs> and then they decided to start shooting the potatoes. Right. And then they were able to go out and ravage and shoot the universe. <laughs> right. And I, I do like the one comment that they make in there that they said that was the best thing they could do for a sack of potatoes until the invention of the deep fat fryer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <those> poor potatoes. <laughs> <laughs> and they built a computer named Hectar. So Hactar remained from one book to the other. Yes. And Hactar was a supercomputer designed to create the ultimate weapon to end the whole universe. And of course, he built a flaw in the design because nothing could be worse than the consequences of setting it off. 
So they pulverized Hektar. Right. And the incident that caused them to want to set off the bomb, I believe that's in this area, right? Is that yes. uh, yeah, oh, there yeah. was a change of address card that a computer didn't know what to do with. So he panicked and that's what caused him to decide to blow up the universe. Yes. A very, very ridiculous <laughs> little inconvenience. Was, yes, exactly. I can't take it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so then we get to chapter two, sandwiches and outrage. Mm-hmm. This doctor travels with his companion, Romana, a fellow Time Lord, and a robot dog named K-9. This regeneration of the Doctor is the fourth and is portrayed on TV by Tom Baker. Uh, He is the one that has adorned with the overly long scarf and is arguably the most beloved of the Doctors. Mm -hmm. Uh, He certainly was the Doctor for the longest amount of time. Right. He is the biggest jokester. And his personality fits in with the humor of Adams, I believe. Yes, it does. And I'll make a, a comment at this point. I was a little annoyed by the actual reading of this book. I did the same kind of thing. I had a, a digital copy in front of me and I was reading through it. But when I was listening through it the first time, the, the actor could portray different voices. Yes. But whenever he took on his Doctor Who voice, I, 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 I wanted to smack him. <laughs> I... I didn't because I was able to project Tom Baker on that voice. You were, you were fortunate. I, I found that the best thing to do, which is what I did the second and third time I listened to it, I sped it up to 1.5%. <laughs> oh, all right. <laughs> and then it didn't annoy me nearly as much. <laughs> it's not anything that I really thought about because I got over it real quickly, but... Mm-hmm. I will say the first time I heard him do his doctor voice, I was taken aback because okay. it's an over-the-top parody of the doctor. Right, and, and, it's, and it's a little too angry. I, you know, that, that's the only other thing I heard, and, and maybe it was me. I don't know. Yeah, I don't think I got too much anger, but mm-hmm. it was an over-the-top performance of it, but it kind of... Help me get through the book, I guess. Yeah, it, mellows, it mellows out nicely at 1.5 speed, so you might want to try it again. Oh, all right. I'll try that. <laughs> and then and you get through the book a whole lot quicker. Mm-hmm. Only six hours instead you of do. eight or whatever this is. Actually, it's longer than that. I don't even remember what yeah. this was. Oh, it's long. It's, uh, it's yeah. This doctor brings his companion Romana to a cricket match. And she was horrified. Cricket was described as if a prep school teacher had tried to demonstrate infinity, which I believe we discussed was about our impressions of cricket. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Hasn't lost its appeal, has it? No, no. (laughs) Or better yet, gained. (laughs) I'm going to have trouble believing that anybody listening to this does not know that the doctor's time machine is called a TARDIS, and the name is an acronym for Time and Relative Dimension in Space. It appears on the outside as a blue police call box, and on the inside, it is infinitely big. Correct. Common phrase that is used, it's bigger on the inside than it is on the outside. I say that all the time. The doctor has almost... <laughs> Insert graphic picture here. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, there we go. <laughs> oh. Wow. 
Wow, talk about derailing my thoughts. Sorry. <laughs> the doctor has great difficulty controlling where the TARDIS is going. In a parallel with Dirk Gently, though, mm-hmm. it rarely takes him where he wants to go, but it always brings him where he needs to be. Right. And during this book, Romana will be the one who does all of the accurate piloting. Correct. So the doctor can never get it to go where it goes, but Romana is capable. Right. The doctor said that the event that they were going to required a tie. And he was very happy about it. And the book described the clothes he was wearing to the cricket match as a random assembly of jacket, trousers, waistcoat, and a long scarf. It also said that his proudly worn tie was ignored, mm-hmm. even though he was waving it at them. And <laughs> I could picture the doctor doing exactly that. So okay. there were a lot of things they said about this doctor that I could just picture exactly. Right. And then the doctor is also waving around an old card from like 1877 to get into Lord's Cricket Ground. That's signed by W.G. Grace. Mm -hmm. Yep, I had to look it up. He is considered the father of cricket. There you go. (laughs) I thought that, wasn't it Doctor Who that has that, you know, the ability to make somebody believe whatever it is he holds in his hand is exactly what he needs? Yes, um, it's like psychic paper. Okay. So he holds up this blank piece of paper and tells them what they're supposed to see, and they see what they need to see. To get him in with his with credentials. Okay. But I don't know when that originated. Yeah, neither do I. So during this Doctor Who book, I guess I will call it, for lack of a better term, fan service for Douglas Adams or Douglas Adams-isms. Mm-hmm. So you're reading along this Doctor Who book and then all of a sudden there's a word or a phrase that just jumps out at you that you go, well... I know why this was thrown in there. Mm-hmm. And here's one that I'm on the fence on because it's very subtle. So in describing the game of cricket, even though the idea of what it depicts is horribly offensive, the doctor called it harmless. And harmless is a normal everyday word, but when it's used in anything Douglas Adams, it has this other reference. So I'm just wondering if you think that the harmless was thrown in there because of Douglas Adams and everything that happened, or do you think harmless was put in the original script before Hitchhikers was even thought of? No, I I think it was added as you read it. It sounded like it was pieced together. Yes. So yeah, I, I, I think it was added. And then this chapter ends mm-hmm. with the doctor vanishing. Right. Which really kind of bugged me because it had a whole different implication than what actually happened. It made it sound like Romana was watching him and he disappeared. Right. Where, in fact, she just looked away for a moment and the old man just wandered away. (laughs) Exactly. We lost all that glorious striding about as if he were Moses in the fire, didn't we, though? Yes, we did. I like that in the book. (laughs) Yes. And I like that they made it better in the real book. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, like he's got these ideas and then they come up. So that brings us to Chapter 3, An International Incident. 
And it starts out with all of the different ways that the doctor vanishes, which are really, really bad. Mm -hmm. And this one, though, is that he just slipped away, which is the worst way he vanishes. You know, he can be beamed up or captured or fall in a pit, but when he just wanders away, that's the worst. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So he storms down to the pitch for the ashes ceremony, and he was described like Moses coming down from the mountain. And that's it. (laughs) <laughs> like mm-hmm. you said, there was no more of this pomp and circumstance of all of the fire. <laughs> then in an extremely awkward scene, the doctor made those at the ceremony describe the ceremony in great detail. And the, the trophy is full of ashes of the cricket stump and the trophy is welded shut. So obviously nobody knows what's in there and he's kind of teasing them about it. <laughs> exactly. So they're talking about the ashes and Doctor Who is inquiring as to where they came from and what they are. And various people spout out various answers. But the one that I thought was was really humorous is one guy shouts out, a budgie! <laughs> yes! <laughs> yeah. The ashes was made of an old bird. <laughs> Yeah, I didn't I think that was funny. <laughs> it, it was funny because it was as non sequitur as you could get away from what the ashes are. Yes. <laughs> and I think during that scene, the doctor's explaining the cricket match to Romana, and the one universal truth that is out there is that when there is a group of people that is extremely serious about something and they overhear somebody else casually explaining it incorrectly and not as seriously, they get all offended. (laughs) And then we get to Chapter 4, finally, Killer Robots. (laughs) So again, 11 white robots appear out of a ship that look like a cricket pavilion. They look like empty cricket uniforms, though. They're Mm -hmm. pads and helmets and a very deadly steel knife-edged bat. Many spectators thought it might be a publicity stunt from an Australian margarine manufacturer. That must be some kind of cultural reference that escapes me because yeah. <laughs> Australian margarine, I don't I don't get that whole thing, but he made it sound really important when he read it. <laughs> so the robots are appearing to play cricket. And the battle strategy, as they wreaked havoc and death and destruction all over, the doctor stood motionless holding the trophy. The robots approach him. And before they got there, Romana materializes the TARDIS on its side between the doctor and the robots like a barrier and then opens the door and... The doctor doesn't go in right away and the robots climb over and take the trophy. This was a disturbing chapter to me because the TARDIS didn't have to be on its side. And and the visualization in my head of the TARDIS laying on its side really bothered me. Did it bug Mm -hmm. you at all? Well, yeah, it it did. And I don't know where he was going with that. I I really don't know. That that seemed to be a, I I don't know, to the delight of the author. It's the only thing I can think of. Yes, I would say it was to delight of the author. But it was unnecessary because even if Romana perfectly positioned it in there for the doctor, 
he still let the robots take the ashes from him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, get in. Why are you standing there going on and on and on? Oh, yeah. And talking about going on and on and on, that's chapter five, right? <laughs> yes, chapter five. Unforgivable thefts from a hairdresser. Oh, yay. So we're told about the doctors and Romana's home planet, Gallifrey. Most stayed on Gallifrey where it was serene and nothing ever changed. Uh, They mentioned the master Mm -hmm. who left and tried to conquer as much of the universe as they could, Mm -hmm. or as he could. And the doctor, being unique, spent his time trying to save the universe. And here we get the first of many of this style Douglas Adams-isms, or whatever you want to call them. We are told what the doctor does between saving planets. He is said to go fishing badly, reciting poetry loudly, mm-hmm. and name-dropping badly and loudly. So we'll get that repeat style over and over in this book. <laughs> right. And the only other reference line I've got uh, written down here back to Adams is, at one point, Doctor Who says, it helps me to wake up without screaming in the morning. <laughs> Right. So it's an echo of Arthur's days in the cave, you know? Yes, yes it is. So Romana's with the doctor. She was only supposed to be with him for a short while, but they just never found the time to get back. But now with the cricket men, they have to go back to Gallifrey and let them know that somehow the cricket men who were locked away are back. So they get to Gallifrey and we get to hear a description The architecture was best described as, I think we're going to say what you just said very recently about the author, how very pleased it was with itself. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So the Dr. Romana look at the decor and realize that their home planet has no taste. (laughs) Uh, This discovery is the reason for the title to this chapter. Mm -hmm. So this next part seemed out of place and I'm not sure if it was originally there or put in for the novelization because they mention an ugly uncomfortable sofa that made me think of the Chesterfield yeah I saw that or I I shouldn't say saw it I heard that read that and I got the same uncomfortable feeling it was like shoved in there for no good reason um right well their their explanation of the good reason was to yeah was to prove how badly Gallifreyans uh, design their own stuff. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, the only thing I thought it was funny in this particular sequence was when they were talking about the bookworms. Do you have anything about bookworms? <laughs> I remember the bookworms, but I didn't write anything about the bookworms. So go ahead. Talk about the bookworms because it was kind of well, funny. Yeah, they, they're talking about the bookworms having uh, eaten all the... Um, material of the various uh, books that were retained in the library and then they were describing a uh, what was it a cartoon or something i think so that showed the life of the bookworm and uh, uh, the doctor remarks um but but how do they keep their glasses on? <laughs> yes yes and <laughs> i mean it's an old joke, but, uh, you know, worms don't have right. ears. Right. <laughs> yes. But it, but it was another one of those parts that 
glaringly jumps out at you, seeming like out of place. Like, why was this just tossed in? Right. But it, it was funny and right. makes you laugh. They're referring back to previous TV show episodes of Doctor Who where he accidentally becomes president of Gallifrey. They're apprehended. Mm-hmm. And another parallel with Life, the Universe, and Everything is a take-me-to-your-leader joke where Trillian had always wanted to use the phrase take-me-to-your-leader and she found a way to do it and she was all proud that she was able to do it. The doctor, because he's president of of Gallifrey, says, take me to me. (laughs) So even though that was telegraphed and the most obvious line in the entire book, (laughs) it still cracked me up. I liked how Romana pointed out that she used to love the pomp and splendor of Gallifrey, and now she just seems to find it silly. Mm-hmm. So I find a lot of that, too. All these old traditions, as time goes on, just they lose their splendor because mm-hmm. you've seen it so many times. Yes. They also tell us here that the Time Lords have extremely long lives and that they can regenerate. So they actually have 13 long lives. Yes. Another passage that jumped out at me that made me wonder if it was in the original script. So we're talking about the Cardinal, who was both the Doctor's and Romana's tutor. He had taken charge while the Doctor is away. So the Doctor's away and he's acting president. He said he used to regenerate when his previous bodies wore thin at the elbows. <laughs> and I'm like, wait, I, that, sounds, that sounds familiar. Yeah. Is this original or is this stuffed in to take me out of the story because it has nothing to do with anything else right no i I got that one and then the other thing that they talk about at this point barossa points out that his lives have been cut shorter uh and he's frequently had to regenerate because of the current doctor who and the lives that the current doctor who is leading and they make a sort of an offhand comment that they studied the situation and they believe that it was because he's recently been exposed to a high degree of improbability. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Another thing (laughs) that just gets stuck in there. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're only in chapter five of 42 and I'm probably going to say this a number of times, but you're trying to get into and enjoy this Doctor Who novel and then they throw in these little unnecessary pieces that just <laughs> take you out of the book. Mm-hmm. And then you got to find your way to work back into the story because yep. you're you've just gone off on another tangent. Yep. Was that happening to you? Yeah, I mean, it really was. I mean, like I said when, in the beginning when we talked about it, it was the title is is aptly written. It's Doctor Who and the Cricket Men. Right. Yes. Yes. <laughs> It, it, it especially when I got to this part about the Gallifreyan politics, I was like, ugh, I don't even want to know, you know. But I did my due diligence and listened through and 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 pounded my way through it. And like you said, it's the homage to the Doctor Who side that seems to be heavily influenced this particular novelization. Yeah, they also talk about luck and how if luck exists, there has to be a finite quantity. Mm-hmm. And the doctor is extremely lucky, mm-hmm. so he uses up the luck around him, leaving little for anyone else. 
after they told the Cardinal that the cricket men were back, they were taken to the Great Matrix Chamber. Right. This is where all the souls of the Time Lords of Gallifrey go uh, when they're out of regenerations. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know, it's kind of like the elders, the like the dead spirit elders mm-hmm. that they ask all the profound questions to. Right. It houses all the knowledge and wisdom ever in the history of Gallifrey. Since the Matrix should have predicted the coming of the Cricket Men and it hasn't, there must be something wrong. And now the Doctor and Romana have to go into the Matrix. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, that's that's not going to turn out well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, then we get to Chapter 6. Further important and exciting galactic history. Again, do not skip. The planet of Cricket is explained identically identically to how it is in life the universe and everything in a nutshell night sky is black no stars dense cloud the people of cricket did not really think that they were alone in the universe because they were unaware there was a universe then the spaceship crash lands they disassemble and reassemble and in a year they built their own spacecraft they took it through the dust cloud came back different They told what they saw, and it terrified the people of Cricket. They did not hate the universe. They just could not cope with it being there. Here's a line from Romana that I liked. She was unable to believe that it only took a year to build the spaceship. So she said it was either asking a lot of people or expecting a very slow orbit. (laughs) So (laughs) it only took a year but mm-hmm. it was a real <laughs> slow orbit around the sun. Right, right. <laughs> so we get to Chapter 7, more on the galaxy reeling. Mm-hmm. Right as the cricket robots were sent to attack the whole of the galaxy, it just so happened at the only time ever of universal peace. So the universe finally had universal peace, and here come the robots. Right. To represent universal prosperity, the giant wicked gate was created. The three vertical sticks were steel for strength and power, perspex for science and reason, wood for the forces of nature, and the two shorter horizontal sticks were gold for prosperity and silver for peace. This symbol was available in all shapes and sizes and forms for purchase. <laughs> so it was funny how it's like it became a marketing thing immediately. Right, right. <laughs> so one of my favorite jokes in this section is one that is not immediately caught. You have to think back on it. A comedian from a while ago used the term joke grenades. Okay. It was when they were mentioning all of the ways the symbol was merchandised. Trinkets, displays, tattoos. One of the ways was to have it as your house and live in it. Right. But it was very expensive, and you spent most of your life in elevators. Right. Because <laughs> it's three vertical poles. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so if you had that as your house, you would spend a lot of time in elevators. There you go. Make lots of friends. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Uh, The giant wicket gate was a tourist attraction, and it was the first thing that the cricket robots attacked. Here's another example of how I like when they're able to turn ordinary and mundane into comedy. Mm -hmm. It's funny of 
how ordinary and mundane it was. The galaxy has just become aware it is under attack with the destruction of the Wicket Gate. And here's how the attack is described. In seconds, they demolished the gate, annihilated the VIP queue, then the ordinary queue, then the <laughs> gift shop, and finally, visitor parking. <laughs> it's like... <laughs> they can't just say it destroyed the tourist attraction. Mm-hmm. He specifically goes <laughs> all the way to visitor parking. <laughs> uh, anyway. So the cricket war lasted a thousand years and was described as horrifying carnage. Another parallel between this book and his Hitchhiker's books is the usage of creating a reading list of other books and authors. Yes, and and one of them was Dr. P.L. Zoom's book, The Horrifying Carnage. (laughs) (laughs) So, kind of on the nose with that title. And another, I don't remember the author's name, but another one was just... Why, why, why? (laughs) So this was the first great test of Gallifrey. Mm -hmm. Uh, They had a policy of non-interference, kind of like Starfleet, the prime directive. Mm -hmm. Uh, It took them almost a thousand years before they agreed to get involved in the war. And they created an impenetrable barrier between their allies and the cricket men that basically disintegrated anything trying to get through. And I really like this part. It made me feel not as bad about using incorrect terms because Romana told the doctor that he was jumbling galaxy, cosmos, and universe rather free-handedly. And the doctor <laughs> said they're pretty much the same thing, right? And K-9 goes negative. <laughs> so I have difficulty myself distinguishing and interchanging cosmos, galaxy, and universe all the time. So... It's nice to Mm -hmm. see the doctor does it, too. (laughs) Now that they had the barrier, the galaxy was able to defeat the cricket men basically by scale. The sheer size of the galaxy was able to overwhelm the people of cricket. And then they had to decide what to do with them. So that brings us to Chapter 8. So much for universal peace. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. I skipped right to chapter 11 in my notes. (laughs) Oh, all right. (laughs) So I'll just go through this. So the official accounts of history gloss over what happened at the end of the war. So the Doctor, Romana, K-9 use the TARDIS, and they go to the end of the cricket war to find out what really happened. At the hearings, they heard that harmonious coexistence was impossible, and they heard that they were not evil, just misguided and the victims of a freakish accident of history, and they can't destroy them all. Because the hearing was so boring, the three of them went exploring. Oh, that's kind of a poem. (laughs) (laughs) They came to a place that did not look or feel right, and they saw a door. It was locked. K-9 unlocked it, and it was discovered to be a TARDIS, a war TARDIS. And most TARDISes adapt themselves to their owner's tastes, A war TARDIS adapts their owners to them. So here we get this war TARDIS out of nowhere that happens to be at this hearing. Right. We get to hear about battle cardinals and their connection to the war TARDISes. Makes them bloodthirsty and ready to fight. 
The Doctor and Romana discover that the peace conference being run by a war TARDIS, which is not in the official records, and it mentions that Romana mm-hmm. reaching for a pen with a really sharp pointed nib that she just wanted to plunge into someone. So Romana was starting to get affected by the war TARDIS and had these killer ideas. So the solution to the peace conference was just to put everyone from cricket back on cricket and neutralize them. They would be put into the slow time envelope and locked away in an impenetrable barrier until the rest of the universe died so they could live out their solitary lives. Then the doctor had a really great line that I believe is a universal truth, which is, I never like a solution that is so neat that you can't help but say, what can possibly go wrong? Right. (laughs) Chapter 9, Running on Imagination. The peace conference is attacked, but nobody at the peace conference notices. And this is where everything started getting confusing to me. So that's probably why you didn't write any notes about any of these chapters. (laughs) Because having knowledge from the other books, Mm -hmm. he uses this type of thing in historical records. But I think the robot attacking them at the conference is really happening. So when they're reviewing historical records in Hitchhikers, there's all this mayhem that goes around. But because it's a recording, nobody notices but they use some sort of technology that keeps them from noticing. So I thought that was right. weird. Chapter 10 is Grim Conclusion in Nowhere. This was a very short chapter, but I found it even more confusing. <laughs> because they want to know the real story and not the one told in history, they have been traveling through time to the key moments involving cricket. Right. And they all go in the TARDIS to just outside the dust cloud around Cricket. And they try to figure out where the Cricket robots come from. When they looked at the small asteroid orbiting the dust cloud, on it was a giant wiki gate, the tourist attraction. And then a hotel was being built next to it. Right. So here's a part that I don't know what it's supposed to mean. Hmm. The doctor throws a coin and it pauses for a bit and then continues on as normal. K9 confirmed that the TikTok interface between real time and slow time, if slow time was activated, why did the coin keep going as normal? Shouldn't it have appeared to stop? Like, it sounded like he was throwing a coin through the slow time envelope, and it made a little glitch when it passed through. Right. But then it kept going. Right. It should have stopped. Yeah. I have the same feeling. I don't know what he was going for. I don't either. It didn't make sense at the time, except to show that there was a barrier between where they were and where the coin went, (laughs) you know? Right. So then a cricket ship comes out of nowhere, crashes into the key gate to destroy it, and right after that, the wicket gate and the ship, they drop into a time vortex, which scattered the pieces of the gate and the ship all across space and time. Yeah, I have to admit, I got lost at this particular moment in time, too, because one of the things that bothered me the most about that particular moment is if they were traveling back in time and they saw the destruction of the Wicked Gate happen, wouldn't they have known that the Wicked Gate had been destroyed and the parts of it had been dispersed because they're ahead in time? <laughs> which which could have indicated that they had a problem with the cricket <laughs> men and they should have been aware that they might have had a problem, but they didn't really think of it. 
until they went back to look in the uh, uh, back forth time. That's the time. difficulty with time travel stories. <laughs> <laughs> I did not like this yeah. scene. <laughs> but anyway, they get to see what happened. Everything gets dispersed out in space and time. And from this point in the book, it is them jumping from place to place to place to place, looking to try and retrieve all of the pieces of the Wicked Gate. So each of the next chapters is all going to be a different planet where they're trying to retrieve a piece of the gate. Okay, um, here's where I started thinking about Garrison Keeler. <laughs> okay. Did we talk about Garrison Keeler before? Do you remember? We have not. No, I don't remember talking. Is this? Well, I mean, it's it's it's, it's all... something about his book yes. or about Prairie Home Companion? About Prairie Home Companion and his book. So, so you're familiar with Garrison Keillor okay. and his PBS special or whatever, and yes, you probably know that he's no longer on the air, right? But at some point, he decided to write the book Lake Wobegon, right? And I remember that I eagerly waited for his new release of the radio show so that I could listen to the story and I would laugh and giggle and have a good time. It was an excellent radio program. It was an, an excellent radio program. But honestly, in my entire life, there's never been, and hope that there never is, another book that I started and put down and refused to read. <laughs> that could, huh? Than Garrison Keillor's. <laughs> oh my gosh, I'm sorry, but it was the worst book I've ever read. And I put it down and I never finished it. I don't even know how far I got into it, but I'm like, I can't understand this. I think like Wobegon, the whole story, all the lines and the people are all funny and it's hysterical. And this book is horrible. And it's the only book in my history that I've never actually finished reading. Wow. <laughs> even if I didn't like a book, I would finish you it. You would get that through one, it. Yes. It's on the shelf. Never going to pick it up again. And I got to tell you, after the first time through <laughs> chapter 11, etc. <laughs> I was about there. Uh, yeah. uh, Me and Garrison were on the same fence. Right. I mean, I've got lots of notes because it was kind of interesting, but it wasn't anything close to what I would call entertaining. I Yeah, I, I agree. <laughs> so chapter 11 is the private life of the busiest man in the universe. And we jump to the great Khan. Mm -hmm. And he's having difficulty scheduling, taking over the world. While he's doing this, the doctor is hanging upside down and being smoked over a fire to be eaten later. Yes. And then I have to, like, stop and just go, did I miss a whole <laughs> chapter? <laughs> you know, I am not a fan of of backwards storytelling. No. Where you tell the end of the story first and then, or the middle of the story. And right. then you jump to the beginning of the story and then you get, it's... Tell a story in, in order. If you can't do that, then that means your story's not interesting enough mm -hmm. if you have to break it up. Right. The only thing I thought that was interesting was it said that these people were cat people. <laughs> that they were descended from cats. Yes. And that they all had lovely singing voices. Right. <laughs> right. So Romana comes in and saves the doctor, pretending that she's some sort of inspector and needs to interview the doctor about his torturing methods. And then they walk through the woods and they look out at an island and they see the steel pillar of strength sticking out of the island. 
and they want to get to it. And then here's where they tell the doctor was captured without ever telling us how he was captured. When they get to the island, Romano was looking at the steel pillar and the doctor started saying how beautiful it was. And Romana found it quite ordinary. And then she realized that the doctor was looking and talking about a large red bird. <laughs> right. The doctor and Romana were trying to figure out how to get the steel pillar back to the TARDIS when the cricket men arrived and they blew the steel pillar out of the ground and stole it. So again, procrastination <laughs> is what got the opportunity to retrieve a key piece foiled. Yeah. You want to add to that? No, I no, I was really really just thinking about time travel again. Yeah. <laughs> Doesn't make sense. Why didn't they get there one second before the guy blew it up and took it? Right. Right. <laughs> I don't know. Chapter 12 is the damp resentment of a planet. We now catch up with the Doctor and Romana on Morivi 2. They are there to retrieve the Perspex Pillar, <laughs> which is the Rod of Justice on this planet. And this planet is full of a culture who is easily offended and overreacts to everything. And this was a painful <laughs> chapter to get through. Oh, yes. I 100% agree. The only thing I thought was interesting was when they were talking about the 10 things to see before you die. Okay. On Moravi 2. Yeah. And they couldn't come up with a list of 10 things, so they just named their list, Oh, Just Die. <laughs> <laughs> right. Forgot about that. And I, and I wanted to die, frankly. <laughs> right. So in a nutshell, the doctor offends somebody, gets arrested... They go to trial. The judge is going to use the rod of justice to give a guilty verdict. The robots arrive. The doctor snatches the pillar out of the judge's hand and throws it to Romana, who runs. The doctor could not remember where the TARDIS was and was just running with K-9. And then Romana materializes the TARDIS around them. So it's like, well, why didn't you materialize around the steel pillar the last <laughs> island. <laughs> you know, all these after-the-fact uh, questions. Yeah, exactly. And this is where that whole concept that I was talking about in the comments came back, was maybe if you were trying to serialize this and make it into, like you said, 42 chapters or 21 chapters or whatever, you know, maybe this was an idea of chapterizing the, the events here. But Each uh, of these chapters where they're retrieving a piece of the key... Is a show, is a TV episode. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I gathered that. The only other thing that I thought was funny in this chapter, if you will, is when uh, the doctor's in the prison cell and he's he finds the console and he's trying to use the console to uh, create a, a situation where he can get out of prison and it's the console's covered with soup. Right. And... <laughs> He's, he can't hardly see through it. And then at one point he says, uh, then the jailers came down and threatened everybody with more soup. <laughs> I thought that was kind of funny. Yeah. <laughs> chapter 13. Oh, but I was searching. Yeah. Chapter 13 is why fish don't need mortgages. We hear about the planet Devilin. It's mostly a water planet inhabited by excellent fishermen who stopped catching fish. They just like floating around in their boats. And then, hey, he snuck in a really bad pun for you. <laughs> Autonomous Fug is an mm -hmm. estate agent who ended up on this planet 
By being chased by a group he upset trying to turn their offices into apartments. Mm -hmm. He convinced the Devilonians that the small bit of land was very valuable because there was so little of it. And he created a whole economy. Right. Yeah. Agnonymous Fug. Agnonymous Fug. After Fug created this economy, they ended up building houses, a fish shop, and a bank, which gave them money to buy fish and pay for their houses. Right. The lady at the fish shop did not know what money was, but she was getting an awful lot of it for handing over fish, which everyone knew grew on seas. Right. (laughs) (laughs) All right. That one we give to James and say, thank you very much. I've had enough. (laughs) Right. So they built a second bank and create a free market and more houses and mortgages and all of that. The TARDIS is illegally parked. It got a lot of fines and they use all of this in legalese. And the doctor is able to get into the bank to steal the or to retrieve the golden bale. But the cricket robots got there first. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so the gold bale is gone. Mm-hmm. Chapter 14, The Perfect Planet, is Beth Salomon. And Beth Salomon has the silver bale. Right. This is the planet from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy with so much tourism that every time you go to the lavatory, it is vitally important to get a receipt. Right. And this is before the tourists got in there. And they're described as fuzzy bear-like cuddly people. <laughs> right. But not enough purple. Not enough purple. No For purple. some reason, there's not enough purple. And they don't really go into why or how that's funny, but... The doctor just keeps complaining that there's not enough purple. (laughs) The reason this planet was perfect is because they have plenty of natural resources, but no mineral wealth. So they don't ever get attacked because nobody needs anything from them. So they're very confused that the cricket men want to come and get the silver rod of peace. They materialize the TARDIS inside the Temple of Peace to replace the silver rod with a piece of steel that Romana found in a supply room. But while they were stealing it, they were caught by the ambassador they spoke with, and the robots arrived and started to kill everyone. Mm -hmm. The doctor was curious about the cricket men's ship and went inside, and lo and behold, it was bigger on the inside than it was on the outside. (laughs) And he came across a big red lever with a warning sign, and he just had to pull it. Yep. (laughs) And then... This chapter could be the title of the book, The Boring Test. (laughs) Oh, yeah, I thought you'd get a kick out of this one. It scraped the edges of a pun so hard that it was like punsville. (laughs) Yes. Apparently, the big red lever turned off all of the cricket men. And then here it is again. To check the condition of the cricket men, the doctor kicked one. Then it said, nothing happened. (laughs) Nothing continued to happen. Yeah, exactly. So he found a way to work that little piece in there. Yep, Yep. I got that one. (laughs) So Romana examined the cricket robots and looked in a helmet and discovered that nothing was there. They were also worried because you can't turn off cricket men. The boring test was invented by Dr. Boring and is used to distinguish normal robots from sentient ones. 
sentient robots do not have off switches. If your entire army can be deactivated by a switch, that is a bit of an Achilles heel. So now that's an Earth reference that's probably not understood by the people of Beth Salomon, <laughs> who have never known war. So <laughs> what, what do you think that they were thinking when he used Achilles heel? Uh, mm-hmm. American audience? English audience? Yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, he, yeah. Doctor Who is like a huge Earth. Anglophile. I mean, he loved England. You know, he spent all his time there. So Yes, he did. And he interacted with lots of philosophers and, and uh, people of importance in on the Earth. But it's probably just a translation error. <laughs> yes. They posited that if an automated robot became sentient it would remove the off switch. Yes. And the doctor disassembled the robot or autopsied the robot, depending on your perspective. He discovered inferior circuitry disguised as extremely advanced AI processors. So the universe has been duped and the boring test kept the cricket robots from being destroyed and they're being stored on a Time Lord prison planet called Shada. Mm-hmm. But did you get the uh, the boring pun? do the boring pun (laughs) well it wasn't so much the pun of course boring is being the the pun was that uh, uh, Dr. Boring was upset about his name and he flirted with the idea of changing it to maybe something like maple (laughs) 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 I just thought that was funny (laughs) so as you mentioned in this chapter they talk about the boring test. And as you said, the boring test was a test designed to understand the difference between a robot and a sentient robot or a, a robot that went beyond its parameters. Yeah. And they use the reference in this book as the difference between a robot and a sentient robot is like the difference between a kettle and a puppy. They are quite different. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So chapter 16 is Contains Nice Biscuits. Uh-huh. The doctor has gone to meet with a professor of chronology, Professor Chronotos, or something like that. Romana right. has been asked to stay behind and run to be the president of Beth Seliman. So they're saying Romana's not going to be in this for a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, she also had all the deactivated cricket robots collected, put in the pavilion ship to be flown to Gallifrey. Mm-hmm. Professor Kronotos has the book of Raskillian and is not actually a book. It looks like a book, but it is actually the key to Shada. The doctor wants the book so he can find the robot army and destroy them because they are not sentient. Right. Chapter 17 is hit for six, <laughs> which I think is a cricket reference. Mm-hmm. The doctor goes to Shada with K9. They find the five million robots stored in their own dimension. The doctor does not notice the TARDIS has been breached and the cricket robots rode with him to Shada. (laughs) So I don't know how that happened. Mm -hmm. Before the doctor could hit the giant red button to jettison the robots and get rid of them, Romana, dressed in cricket whites, bashed K-9 and clubbed the doctor in the head and knocked him out. Romana has been taken over and is now controlled by the cricket robots. Mm-hmm. They now have all the pieces of the key and are going to unlock the planet 
of Cricket and Take Over the Universe. <laughs> oh, man. I just wanted to point out one thing about this last one. I thought it was kind of funny. Again, I, I wouldn't reference this as a Adam's thing, but it was kind of funny. Okay. They're talking about flying above the asteroid, and they look down on it. It looks like uh, a mini golf course. <laughs> and, all, and the only thing they're missing right. was the little windmill. <laughs> so, yes. yes. I didn't think that was kind of funny. Yeah, there are a lot of little gags. And that and uh, the doctor singing uh, Gilbert and Sullivan as he's walking through a dangerous uh, prison planet right. to, to settle his nerves. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, boy, what a trog. So chapter 18 is regrettable acts between the swimming pool and the car park. Romana took the TARDIS to the asteroid orbiting the dust cloud next to a hotel. Once there, the cricket men released their hold over Romana and unlocked Cricket from its envelope of slow time. The Doctor, Romana, and K-9 left in the TARDIS. They repaired K-9 and decide to go down to the planet and try to reason with the people of Cricket. That is the end of part one. <laughs> I'm sweating. <laughs> Because there is no possible way we could do this in one episode, we are going to do our bonus episode this month of part two of this book. So we're just going to stop here and we'll see you in two weeks to hopefully, please come back. <laughs> <laughs> if, if we haven't made it uh, exciting and, 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 and inviting and and desirous of listening to more of this story uh, i apologize <laughs> yes there might be more graphic images <laughs> thank you for listening to digital watches are a pretty neat idea look for us the first thursday of every month for a full episode we will also release a bonus episode later in the month a very special thanks goes out to luke max Greg, and Tim Lesnick for arranging and performing our opening theme. We would also like to thank our talented friends and family for their voice work on our introductions and commercials. Visit our website at digitalwatchesareaprettyneatidea.buzzsprout.com where you can find links to all my Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy-inspired t-shirt designs. You can find us on Facebook and YouTube as Digital Watches Are a Pretty Neat Idea, on Instagram as Watches Idea Podcast, and on Twitter at Watches Idea. If you'd like to contact us, our email is digitalwatchespodcast at gmail.com. <laughs>